welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. This is your host, Christine. I am so glad to be back with you all. I know it has been a little bit of time. May is always a very crazy month for me. There are so many family birthdays, of course, Mother's Day. And then this year, my boyfriend graduated from college again, and I am so proud of him. And we were taking the time to really enjoy celebrating his achievements. So podcasting got put on the back burner a little bit. But I really love going to a graduation. It's just so exciting to see everyone and all of the family members that are there supporting them. It's always wonderful to see everyone all dressed up in their regalia and celebrating all the institutions of learning and academia. I just really love graduation. So to everyone out there that has graduated, all the new nurses, all the new doctors, all the new paramedics, physicians, assistants, respiratory therapists, everybody, congratulations. Truly enjoy it. You guys earned it. Most of you in the medical field are going to be sitting for boards soon, but just take a few moments to celebrate what you've accomplished because obviously it's a very long road and no matter the degree that you obtained, it is something to be shared and enjoyed and just really savor that moment and cherish you know, what you were able to do before you start studying again. I know for me when I finished my NP, I had had probably one of the roughest years of my life, and um, I felt so bad because I was so busy working and going to clinicals and class full-time that I barely saw my dog, and I came home, and not that I'm condoning uh, a lot of drinking, but I had a bottle of champagne, and I was walking around in my giant master's robe feeling kind of like Harry Potter, wouldn't take it off, with high heels on, drinking champagne from the bottle and going to my black lab. (laughs) I'm sorry I was such a bad dog mom. I did this for us. So (laughs) three years later, I still remember that. And I think he's forgiven me. Everyone just really enjoy those fun moments and the celebrations because you certainly earned it. And if you have a job already, if you're going to be getting one soon, I know there is so much anxiety about Will I be ready as a new grad? Will I know enough? Will I ever know enough? I feel like I don't know everything, and that's okay. Just remember that in medicine, you're never going to know everything. Even the smartest people in the world, the smartest physicians, the specialists, they, they don't know everything. But the people that are really astounding providers know when they don't know something. They know when to look it up. They know how to look it up, and they know when to ask for help and who to ask for help. So... Be humble, be compassionate, be kind, and look out for the patient, advocate for your patient, and always just ask for help when you don't know something, and have the humility to ask someone who maybe has a different licensure than your own. You know, new doctors, you can learn so much from paramedics and nurses, new physicians, assistants, you can learn things from respiratory therapists, you can learn things from CNAs, you can learn things from techs. Someone who is experienced in the field has knowledge that they have attained over the years that you may not have. And so that collaboration will provide better patient care. It'll make you a better provider in whatever realm you're practicing in. So be kind to your coworkers, be kind to yourselves, and most of all, remember why you got into this because burnout's real and we want to avoid that as much as we can. Just because someone was rude to you in your training doesn't mean you have to be rude to the next generation. Remember that and please enjoy what you've done and continue on learning. That is so important in this career is to continually stay up to date on what's going on. This is just the beginning of all the learning. I think I 
I fully began to understand the things that were taught in my courses once I got into clinical practice. So I am sure that will be the case for all of you new grads, and I'm so excited to welcome you all into the profession, and particularly Angela, one of our early guests on. She graduated with her NP this year, too. So I'm so happy to have another FNP in this world. I know there's a bunch out there. So congratulations to everyone. You really uh, deserved it. So sappiness aside, um, we are going to be going on to this week's episode. So this week's episode was actually recorded on location at Nova Loudon. It was a new thing for the podcast to be invited to a hospital and record there. So it's going to sound a little bit different, but I hope you like it. And we might as well just get right to it. Here we go. All right. So this week we are actually on location at Inova Loudon with two awesome people. And I'm so excited to get invited to a hospital. This is really crazy for a podcast <laughs> to be uh, doing some on-scene reporting. But thank you so much to Inova and specifically Ray and Amanda for having me here and letting me speak with them about music therapy. So Ray is a music therapist and Amanda is a clinical nurse specialist. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for coming out. So in the podcast, I'm always talking to people that have very different roles in medicine. I'm sure there are a lot of people that don't recognize what a music therapist is or what a clinical nurse specialist is. So does one of you want to start with explaining a little bit about what your role is just in general? Sure. Okay, Ray's letting me go first. Thank you, Ray. Sure. Um, so as Christine said, I am a clinical nurse specialist, been working in that role for close to five years. I would say probably the number one misconception in healthcare is that a clinical nurse specialist is a nurse educator. So we are two very different roles. Um, a clinical nurse specialist is one of the four types of advanced practice nurses. So I think the public is probably most familiar with the nurse practitioner role. That's yep. what most people sort of know. Also nurse anesthetists and nurse midwives. Um, so the CNS, that's our, our abbreviation, uh, we are one of the four types of APRNs. So depending on the state that you reside in, there is some variation in practice depending on um, whether you have prescriptive authority as a CNS or not. Okay. Um, so in the state of Virginia currently right now, the CNS does not have prescriptive authority. We okay. um, register as a CNS under our RN license. So that kind of uh, changes the way the role is utilized in this state in particular. However, uh, fundamentally, the role is really a content expert in a particular area of nursing. So in the acute care setting, in the hospital setting, typically the CNS um, will support, say, critical care nursing. So they'll be the content expert for critical care. So they'll be the person that writes the policies, that looks at all the new research coming out and, you know, decides how are we going to implement this into practice. Sometimes the CNS will do research, depending on where they work. The other way the CNS role can be utilized out in the community setting is they could be, say, in charge of a diabetes clinic. Okay. So it really uh, varies a lot based on the state. But typically in the hospital setting, the CNS will work with an educator and then sometimes with nurse practitioners and they'll kind of work in a team model. So the NPs will round with the physicians, 
they'll be a part of that practice. Sometimes the CNSs will be involved in the rounding and offer practice suggestions. Uh, but really what is unique about the CNS role and really why I chose it is we are the resource to the nurse. So we're there to help the nursing practice be the best that it can be based on the evidence. Okay. So mm-hmm. I know that CNSs are a little bit more popular like in the middle of the country than they are like on the coasts. And part of podcasting is you get to learn about how medicine works all around the world. And so I know in the UK, there's actually a very awesome listener that's a CNS in the UK. And so it is, she's a clinical nurse specialist in MS. And oh, wow. Jenny, I'm going to butcher your description of this. Um, She was explaining it in the Facebook group, but basically kind of what you're saying was she's a liaison for the patients and helping them manage their care and helping them work with the physicians and understand their disease process. And someone's like, we have those in the United States. And I'm like, they're APRNs, but I don't really know what they do. (laughs) (laughs) Because I knew some states they prescribe because I know psych CNSs can prescribe sometimes in Mm -hmm. some states. Do they diagnose in some states? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I was actually just double checking um, the stats <laughs> this morning, but I know it in at least 28 states, the CNS can prescribe. Um, and then it depends on the state as well, whether they can work um, independently from a provider. So similar okay. to a nurse practitioner, but I think the difference is the NP really would follow more the medical model because typically most MPs are working with a provider. They don't always have to, but the CNS is more of a content expert in that area. So like I said, some of them will have that niche area of, I like caring for diabetes, you know, patients who have diabetes. So Mm -hmm. I want to be the expert in diabetes management and they'll run that clinic and work with an NP and they'll kind of, you know, do that. But yes, out in the Midwest, um, I noticed that a lot of the center sort of states, you know, were lit up. And that's probably where those clinics are also happening. Also, maybe out on the reservations and things like that. So it, it does vary. Now, I will say the CNS does do some education, but we are not trained like an educator where their, their focus and their program is really how do you educate you know, the nurses. We do a little bit of education, but it's not our primary role. I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg yes. for everything that all CNSs do, but I think that's a great summation <laughs> for at least even me that was like, I kind of know they exist and I know they're great. I'm just not sure how they're utilized, especially since I work in outpatient. So Ray, talk about music therapy. How did you get into it? What is a music yeah. therapist? Do you just sing kumbaya all day long? I'm sure it is much more nuanced, evidence-based than that. Exactly. Yeah. So I so I'm a board certified music therapist. Okay. So what does that mean? So yes, a music therapist is a clinician. So I am a clinician that uses music as a tool to help address patients' needs and such. So um, a music therapist trains, um, goes to college to become a music therapist. You can go through a four-year program and get a degree in music therapy. Most music therapy programs are also part of the music school in universities. So you're taking all the courses as a music major, plus you're learning and working in all the courses in the therapeutic um, content as well. So once you complete a university program, you then have to do a 1,200-hour internship where you are working with a uh, board-certified music therapist um, for training and supervision. And then after you complete all of that, you then have to sit for a board certification exam. 
And then once you pass that exam, you get the certification of a board certified music therapist. So that is what I am. And then I have since also gone and gotten a master's degree in music therapy as well. So as a music therapist, as I was saying, we use music as a tool to work on clinical goals and clinical needs. So we may address things like anxiety. We may address things like pain. We also may address um, some psychosocial issues where we're using music to help someone deal with coping with being in the hospital or coping with a new diagnosis and such. So all of the work we do as a music therapist is all evidence-based. It's an evidence-based practice, and it's all based on research that has been done. So when I'm using music to help someone, uh, I am generally using live music, playing music in the moment. I play guitar, but music therapists can play any instrument. And the reason I'm using live music as opposed to recorded music is I can tailor the music to the immediate needs of the patient that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So an example of that is if I am working with someone who's really, really anxious, has a lot of high anxiety, maybe because they have a surgery coming up in the afternoon or just because they're right. in the hospital. So if I were to go in and put some really soft, soothing music on for them to listen to and a recorded music, it's really hard to go from that anxiety state where they are down to this soothing place that the music is residing. So as a music therapist, I am going to start by matching the music that I am presenting to where they are in the moment. So I may play something that sounds like I'm imagining they're feeling in that moment. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of like in training together. And then I will slowly manipulate and change the music to bring them to another place, to a more relaxed place. That makes sense. I mean, it's just like in nursing or medicine, when we're giving meds, we titrate to effect. You're just titrating the music to effect. Yes, exactly. And and we can do that um, with pain. We can do it with anxiety. So why music? A couple of things. First of all, we know through research that music is one of the only things that we know that is a multiple brain activity. So, so what does that mean? So if you're looking at someone's brain and they're speaking, that comes from a very specific part of your brain. If they're, you're hearing, same thing, your, your fine motor skills, all this, they all come from very specific parts of our brain. If you add a musical element, like singing, for example, or even listening to music, we see multiple parts of our brain firing. And we know this by looking at musicians in fMRI machines or simply listening to music. So we can use that to our advantage because we also know that our brains are plastic and there are these neuropathways that can send um, signals from good parts of our brain to an injured part of our brain. So if someone has a stroke and they lose their ability to speak because they have aphasia and that affects that part of their brain where your speech comes from, well, if we add singing, we know other parts of their brain are going to start firing up. And we can use singing to work on getting them uh, their speech back. We can use singing to help someone get their voice back if they had a stroke or if they had a traumatic brain injury. So we know our brains work differently when music is involved. So that's one of the areas why music and therapy and healing and healthcare go together. The other is the inherent elements of music kind of our bodies work like music works. Everything we do is in rhythm. If you think about it, mm -hmm. our heart beats in rhythm. We walk in rhythm. We breathe in rhythm. If the rhythm's off something, we're feeling bad. If the rhythm's off in music, the music does not sound good. We want things in our life like harmony. That's a musical term. If we have dissonance in our life, uh, dissonance in music does not sound good. We don't feel good. I like to give the analogy of 
if there is a 40-piece orchestra playing a beautiful Mozart symphony and one oboe player is out of tune, the entire orchestra is going to sound bad. That's how our bodies work. If our appendix is not good, our entire body is going to feel bad. So that's how music uh, and our bodies work. And, and, you know, music has things like minor chords that make you feel a certain way and major chords. Music has tension and resolve. And we can use that when we're helping someone with pain by getting the tension and resolving it. So there are all these different fascinating elements of how music and healing can go together. There's been, and again, I have not read these studies in so long, but I remember there were some studies on like Parkinson's and music therapy because Parkinson's is is a movement disorder, but also with a speech disorder and starting the movement or starting the speech is very difficult. But because like you said, music, it has a rhythm to it. It's very fluid. It's easier once someone has started to continue doing it. So people will sing their speech and then they can continue to speak and get it out. But it's so hard to like... Where speech is so staccato, continuing to have like a, a rhythm to singing whatever they're trying to say is much easier for someone. I think it was Parkinson's. Yeah. Well, it was so long ago that I read no, this. No, that, <laughs> is, that is definitely true with Parkinson's. You know, it's a neurologic <laughs> disorder. Yeah. Music therapists were great for that. Yeah. So with, again, um, the same thing with rhythm and such. So oftentimes with the, when a music therapist is working with someone with Parkinson's, um, might be working on their gait because their gait is very off. So we right. get some rhythm going. And sometimes while they're walking, we might play a song that they love because we also know that the music that's important to us, we respond to. So, you know, we might play a Nat King Cole song for someone who is of a certain age while they're walking with their walker and the rhythm is right like this. And it's like, ah, la, da, 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 da. And they start in training. It's called entrainment. And suddenly they're stepping to the rhythm. Same thing with speech. So that's, uh, there are ways. And I, uh, a colleague of mine has a Parkinson's choir. A colleague of mine who I work with um, at a place to be. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have here at Inova Loudon, we have a stroke recovery choir. What? <laughs> All people who have had a stroke and they come together every week and they sing they probably sing so much better than I do without having had a stroke. They really work on music and they sing and the singing helps them with their, their voice and their aphasia. It's also um, the psychosocial aspect of them all being together. Yeah, and they it's are so isolating. They're famous. They performed at the Kennedy Center about a year and a half ago um, with Renee Fleming, very famous opera singer, as part of a initiative called Sound Health. That's a new initiative with the NIH and the Kennedy Center. Oh, cool. I'll have to link to it. Yes. Oh, the choir's name, uh, because it is a great name, they're called Different Strokes for Different Folks. That's the name of the choir. So, uh, All right. I'm a huge pun <laughs> fan for anyone that follows the podcast on social media. So Different Strokes for Different Folks. I like I like that. Yeah. Nothing like some medical humor. <laughs> it's really an awesome group, and it really speaks to our mission and meeting patients' unique needs and really providing that even after they're hospitalized, you know, offering that to our patients. Patients. And, you know, here at Loudoun, we were the first to get it going within the hospital system. And we're re really excited that the work we have done here is now spreading out to the other hospitals. So. And I, I will also say, and, and this can maybe even lead into talking about um, the research. Yeah, I would do want to ask about that. But, you know, music therapy is a non-pharmacological intervention. And that's, that's the big word here, because we are trying to avoid oftentimes giving more medication for right. anxiety, more medication for right. pain. So through our research, 
we know that a music intervention may be able to help someone reduce their anxiety or reduce pain where we may not have to give as much medication and certainly in this era of opioid use. Um, it's very important. And, you know, more and more hospitals are, to their credit, bringing in um, programs like music therapy, art therapy, healing touch, which we have here, all these non-pharmacological ways to help our patients. Well, and if someone is dancing along to the music that you're playing, you're also incorporating physical therapy and occupational therapy and building strength and balance and building muscle memory. Because I know there are studies that says even if you're not actually doing the movement, but you're imagining movement through dancing or whatever, that actually builds muscle memory and muscle strength as well. So music is so important for that component too. How many music therapists do you have here at Inova Loudon? Right. Um, here at Inova Loudon, we have two. I work predominantly with adults and my colleague here works in pediatrics. Okay. So we, we're pretty much have a, we're here full time throughout the week. Okay. And how many patients would you see in a week? Um, again, it varies. I would say the average on any given day, say, I will see anywhere between five and eight patients. And again, it varies. And, and you know, I'm not just, you know, randomly walking around the hospital going into patients' rooms and saying, would you like music therapy? <laughs> so that's going to no. be my next question. No, How no, does no. care get initiated? <laughs> I, I round, I work closely with the nursing staff in particular, and I, I sort of round with them. And I get mm -hmm. a referral just like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist will get a referral for a patient. Okay. who has those needs. So I will round with either a charge nurse or nurses on the unit, and they will give me referrals. They'll, they'll say to me something like, you know, Ray, I have a patient that's very, very anxious. I, I really don't want to give them any more medication, um, but I need to reduce their anxiety. Can, can you go in and work with them? Or it may be a psychosocial issue, like someone may have gotten a, uh, a new diagnosis and they're here in the hospital and they're having trouble processing that. Maybe I can help with some music. So it's important for me also to know what's going on with the patient before I go in because I'm addressing yes. specific needs. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the nurses do a really great job. Um, they really look forward to working with Ray. He, uh, he was on spring break last week, and the <laughs> nurses really felt that loss of um, his presence because everybody asked me, so he's coming back next week, right? So they really have, you know, we started out a few years ago with this program, and they really have embraced it and utilize it as a standard of care versus just a nice to have. Um, and I think in particular in our ICU, that was, they were probably some of the early adopters as well as our oncology unit, mm. really saw the benefit of what Ray was doing from the beginning, wanting to utilize those non-farm methods and, um, you know, the holistic care that we as nurses are all taught in nursing school and we right. want to give our patients, really being able to offer a patient something as unique as this. And I think it really not only touches the patient, but um, the family as well, because oftentimes Ray will welcome the family in while right. he's doing what he's doing. And there's a fair amount of curiosity, particularly when we're working in ICU because our patients are so sick. Right. Uh, the families often will request to be present and Ray does a great job of including them. And I think they feel really touched to be a part of what he's doing. And it really means a lot. Do you find that the music therapy that you are providing to the patients also kind of incidentally helps lower some stress for the staff on the units too? Because I remember when I was working in EMS in Boston, there would be music therapists, but also like just even piano players in the lobby. And I would walk in after like something crazy and be like, there's just this beautiful music in this one hospital. And I was like, 
this is just really nice, even for like the 15 seconds that I'm walking through here to just take it down a notch for me, even though I'm not the intended target of this. Do you find that the staff feel that way at all? I think so. Um, I know, as I said last week when Ray wasn't here, I think the nurses, of course, were also missing having music therapy here. There are times when you will see them sort of congregate outside of the patient's room <laughs> because they're they're listening and enjoying. Um, and I think that it there's... You know, when you work in an acute care environment, you can feel um, a vibe, if you will, on certain units when things are very hectic Mm -hmm. and you can feel the anxiety of the unit. And I I do think that there is a, a secondary benefit to the nursing staff as well. That would be a really good study for us to do in the future um, Um, to study the secondhand benefits to the nursing staff and all staff, really, because we do have a lot of providers here, uh, particularly our intensivists, who have really embraced Ray Mm -hmm. um, and really enjoy having him and and recommend him. To add to that, I think part of it is a lot of the times I'm getting referrals when nurses' hands are tied. So they don't know what to do because they their patient's in pain and they cannot give them any more medication for two more hours. Right. And their hands are tied. Or, you know, even the psychosocial issues. It's like the doctor was just in and maybe they said, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to suspend treatment because it's not working. And then mm-hmm. the nurse's hands are tied. So a lot of the referrals I get are in those situations. And I think just having something that they can rely on to help in those situations may help relieve their anxiety and stress as well because they're very caring for these patients. And and I've also had a couple of the nurses on the unit tell me that when I go in to see their patients, they will just sit outside the room and do some charting. Mm-hmm. That way they can hear and kind of also take a break for themselves to just kind of, you know, reset and refocus um, so they can go on with the, the rest of their day. You're right. Just sometimes you feel like you're you have nothing to do. Like there's times when I'm like, I know I'm just in a holding pattern waiting for a test to come back or mm-hmm. there's no meds to be given. And we do have a problem. And I think that overprescribing of antibiotics is a big example of this, of we want to help people and it's not always the best intervention, but we want to give someone something to make them feel better in that moment. And so we do it, even though we shouldn't, but giving them something that can actually be evidence-based and help them in that moment right there with immediate gratification must be really rewarding for your clinical staff and not being like, well, I really shouldn't give them that, you know, extra med, even though it's a Tylenol or whatever, or God forbid, an opioid, um, because you want to just do something to help yourself in your own internal struggle and the patient's you know, don't always know what's best for them because that's not their job to know what's best for them. That's our right. job. So that's a great kind of intermediary because it is evidence-based. So tell me about the evidence. You guys did a study. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Uh, so we started our research study um, in 2016 and it was around the time Ray and I had been working together for a while and we started, you know, noticing the benefits and we, Ray was working on his master's degree. So he had to do um, some kind of project. So we just started talking about research and right away we thought we want to do a study in the ICU and the reason we wanted to do that is there really isn't much evidence Mm -hmm. for uh, music therapy in the ICU specifically there are there's some for other pockets of um, different environments like oncology there's been a a number of studies Uh, but we really felt like that patient population in particular could benefit 
I mean, they're the sickest in the hospital. Right. Anxiety is, is always a big one there as well as pain. Yeah. And so we really gravitated towards that environment. So the study we did, we enrolled 52 patients and the patients we enrolled for this study, it wasn't ICU, but they had to be able to consent. Right. Um, and that was bec- uh, for a number of factors. Um, Ray was working on his master's and we had sort of a time uh, <laughs> crunch, if you will. We needed to get the study done in a certain time frame. And in order to include patients on ventilators, then you have to have nurse- more nursing involvement in the study to actually assess the patient. And since Ray is not a nurse, he cannot use nursing tools to assess patients. So uh-huh. he can ask a patient on a scale of one to 10, what's your pain level, you know, on the Likert right. scale, he can do that. But, you know, he couldn't use the CPOT or the RAS or the other things we use in critical care. So we approached patients, since we are a community hospital, our unit uh, ICU is a 12-bed unit. We do have a Beacon Award for uh, critical care excellence, which we are very proud of. And we enrolled patients who were able to sign the consent. So obviously these were not vented patients. And we have a mixed unit um, since it's a 12-bed unit. It really, the census, you know, fluctuates with acuity like any place else. So there are times when we have 12 vented patients or 10 vented patients, and then there's times where we only have a few. Uh, One of the challenges that we encountered because we were doing this type of study is there hadn't been any other music therapy studies here at ANOVA. So we went to a full board IRB review when we submitted our protocol. Which is the institutional review board that has to approve all studies for... Any listeners that are not familiar with writing study proposals and yes. that fun, fun stuff like fun that. Part of science. So, yes. much fun. so Ray and I um, were called to come to the IRB to present our protocol and sort of answer the questions they had. That's what happens when you do a full board IRB review. So that is sort of atypical for this type of work because this is music therapy, right? We're not taking blood from patients. We're not giving them experimental medication. So it's a fairly low risk study. However, it's a study uh, with a vulnerable patient population, which is ICU. They, you know, these patients are sick. They were concerned that there might not be enough patients who could sign for themselves, which, you know, amongst our five hospital system, we're a community hospital. So as I said, um, you know, our census can vary a little more than maybe say at Fairfax, where all of their patients in general in ICUs might be on a ventilator. So some of ours may or may not. But they really had the most questions for Ray because we hadn't done a music therapy study before. The questions primarily were about like what we were doing. And we also offered two different interventions. So typically in research, you know, you provide one intervention for all the patients and you measure how it works. In this study, we offered two different interventions, and that's really because we were trying to meet our patients' needs. Mm -hmm. So with music, you don't want to offer every patient country music because not every patient likes country music. Yeah, that would raise my anxiety (laughs) levels and get out of here, guitar man. Right. (laughs) Well, one of the, um, so yeah, so just to sort of touch on that. So first of all, what we were, what we were looking at was the effects of a uh, music therapy intervention on vital signs, heart rate, respiratory rate, and oxygenation, as well as self-reported pain and anxiety. You have your quantifiable and your qualifiable outcomes. We would get those measurements Mm -hmm. and then I would do a 30 minute music therapy session with the patient and then we get those measurements again and then we would compare pre and post. So as far as the intervention goes, yeah, the, one of the things the IRB was wondering is why are you not playing the exact same music for every patient? It's like if we're doing a drug trial, you give them the same 
drug. Well, that's right. not how music therapy works. <laughs> See, that's you, a very science, yeah, scientist-based question. But like the, the whole point of a music therapy intervention is it's individualized to meet the individualized need of the patient in the moment. So, what does that mean? Right. If the patient's very anxious, I keep going back to anxiety because everybody does have anxiety in the hospital. But the patients have a little say in how music therapy can can work with them. And I think that's really important, too, is like in the place where you have no control to have control over something. That's that is therapy in Mm -hmm. itself. Yes, absolutely. So. You know, I would I would assess where they were. Maybe they're really, really anxious. And I would I would say to them, okay, sounds like you're really anxious. There's a couple of things we can do here. So the first intervention, one is I could play some nice uh, relaxing music or improvised music on the guitar. You can sort of close your eyes and I could talk you through maybe some breathing and some visualization. That's one possibility. Or maybe we can do something a little more song-based where we find some songs that either speak to how you're feeling or songs that are very important to you. We can play those songs, we can sing them together, or you can listen to the words, and and then we can talk about the songs afterwards. And then I would say, what do you think would be helpful for you right now? And they would tell me, and that's what we would do. And and that is, like you said, with control and, and patient's sense of self, that's very important, and it gives them an immediate sense of control and sense of self. I don't know anyone else going into their room asking, like, I don't think the physical therapist goes in and says, so, what would you like to do today? Should do you want do- to play soccer, or yeah, do you want to do those weird yeah, yeah. leg exercises? Yeah. So, um, so, so that important. was that is really what we had to explain to the IRB when we yeah. went there. And once we did, they... they they got it and they were like, oh, that's kind of cool. And yeah. so so that's that was the two different interventions that were offered. Right. And amongst the 52 patients, they split themselves fairly evenly. So I think it was 28 in one group and 24 in the other. So it's about even. With the intervention. Um, with yeah, the, inter- different you know, interventions. the two different yep. interventions we offered. <laughs> um, but what was interesting and what we found is that regardless of the intervention, both patients, both patient groups had statistically significant decreases in pain and anxiety and heart rate and respiratory rate. The only uh, measurement that really wasn't impacted was SpO2. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. Although... So we, we would want their oxygen levels to stay the same. Or, or improve. Or but improve, it didn't but do yeah. anything in, t- in that regard. Although I do think um, heart rate... Uh, decreased more in the relaxation-based sure. intervention where they were closing their eyes and I was just playing the music and talking them through breathing mm-hmm. versus the song uh, song choice intervention. Because the song choice intervention, they were they were sort of more active in that. And even though their heart rate didn't decrease as much, their self-reported anxiety and pain, as Amanda right. said, did. Now, in the intervention with the relaxation experience, I think it was 12? Yes. 12 patients fell asleep. Ah. And... Right. You know, I did not wake them up to ask them <laughs> when yeah. they're, you know, so zero to ten. So was that calming for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you because the nurses were like, "Do not wake my patient." Up. You know, get so out of there. <laughs> we we looked at that as a as a positive, obviously, right. but that did pose some statistical challenge, and we did have yeah. a, a statistician. You... So we had to do these various multiple imputations, um, imputations yes. to kind of show that that was a positive outcome. So that was a very interesting part post as we were writing this up and and analyzing. So that's interesting. You wouldn't think about that because you're like, oh, just 
numbers, but like, oh, they fell asleep and now they can't report. But and now we don't have the data right. there. But it's that's a really positive thing in the ICU. Of, yeah. Oh, I didn't give them Valium and now they're asleep. Able to rest. I yeah. gave them a guitar riff and now they're <laughs> asleep and that is so much better. And you know, <laughs> right. from a statistical standpoint, you, you can't just give them a zero. No. Right. As a, as a self-reported, I mean, we just don't know. Right. But so that's why they had to do these various different computations to figure out the statistical. Right. You know, so yeah. where did you publish the study? So it was published in the January 2019 edition of American Journal of Critical Care. Okay. We will share the link to it on social media. Sure. So, and and just um, as Ray was saying, we did have our primary statistician, Dr. Golenberg, on the study, and she partnered with another statistician because of that specific situation, and they were able to, in their statistical language, um, make a reasonable deduction of what that patient's number would have been. And it was a very complex um, thing. But Ray and I sort of, you know, that that's kind of where we defer to the statistical oh, experts yeah. on those types of things. Right. Yes. Everyone is an expert in their specific field for a reason. <laughs> exactly. And one of the things that we did, so going into the study, I this was my first study as a principal investigator. I was fortunate, though, to work on a few other uh, nursing research studies where I learned a lot and um, partnered with some nurse mentors of mine. And one of the things I learned in a previous study we did in our ICU using Healing Touch is when you use blood pressure as a measurement. If you use blood pressure as a measurement, it can be disruptive to the patient. It's a tight squeeze on their arm, unless you have an arterial line, which we don't always have on every patient in ICU, we have on some. So part of the reason in this study why we specifically didn't measure blood pressure was because we were looking to see if we could provide a relaxing or reduction in pain benefit, and we felt that that would be disruptive to the patient to go ahead and squeeze their arm with that blood pressure cuff after we just relax them. So right. we specifically did not um, measure that because of other work that I had done where I observed that and we talked about it when we did the study design and um, that was why we didn't do it. So there was intention there <laughs> yeah. when we were designing because we, you know, I partner with the nursing research team here at ANOVA and I had learned from those other studies. So, And I think it was important too. We we didn't want to change anything we were doing right. just for research purposes. We wanted to do research on what we were actually doing every day. Right. So everything we were doing in this study, it was our general music therapy care here. We didn't change anything that we were doing specifically for the study. So, you know, if a patient falls asleep, that's great. You know, so so that was very important to everyone involved. We really wanted to see if what we were specifically doing was working um, statistically. So Sure. There was this great joke study that was released by the British Medical Journal um, last year about parachutes failed to show any significant difference in survival rates when jumping out of an airplane versus no parachutes. And then it goes, the study was conducted jumping from planes that are on the ground and not moving. <laughs> and so right. it was basically the point was studies have to be done, you know, in the way that you would see them in clinical practice. A lot of times study environments don't replicate the real world. And so you have to kind of extrapolate your data based on that. And so that's a very important point that it has to be how you would do it in clinical practice. So 
where are you guys going from here with it? Are you going to be doing any more studies? Are you going to be changing the way you practice at all with this? <laughs> the importance of this study, this this was our pilot work, right? So we acknowledge, you know, this is this was a single site study, and uh, you know there were some limitations to the study. Um, obviously, we've already spoken about them, but we needed to do this study to show that music therapy helps in an ICU, and we really didn't have much research on that. And some of the reasons are, you know, there's uh, challenges to working in the ICU environment. There's a lot of factors that can come up, challenges in enrolling patients and patients moving around, unfortunately, sometimes patients dying. But we did decide after we did this study, uh, we actually presented it at the um, ANCC conference in Denver, Colorado this past year. So Ray and I did a session there, which was fantastic. And we got to talk about the work we're doing as a magnet nursing hospital. Um, So we're very proud of that. We wanted to do the next study on patients who are on the ventilator. Uh, That's the next step for us. Logically, we know there, again, isn't a lot of research on that patient population. Obviously, these are the sicker patients. So really, we don't know what the benefit is to these patients. We, we think and we learn as nurses that our patients can hear us. So we think that it'll benefit them, but we just really don't know. So we are in our second study right now, enrolling patients. And this study is really very different because it's a study for patients on the ventilator. We are doing a different intervention, one type of intervention versus offering choice because the patient can't really speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Because these are patients on the ventilator, we're approaching what we call the legally authorized representative, the LAR, which is typically their spouse or their parent or their adult child, depending on their situation. So that poses some different challenges as well, because you have to approach a family versus the patient directly. Right. But we are, we started our study in November. So it's been a few months now. Mm -hmm. And this is also a randomized control trial. So Um, Unlike our previous study where everyone was getting the intervention, in this study, half of the enrollees will receive the music therapy intervention and half will get put in the control group, and they will receive usual ICU care during that time. So going back to what you were saying about letting the environment be what the environment is, we are not manipulating that at all. So if the patient is getting a central line during that 30-minute time frame, we note that, but we're not trying to dim the lights or make it calming or we're not manipulating mm. that. It's just whatever happens during that time. So it's going pretty well. Yeah. Um, and we'll compare mm-hmm. the two groups to see if there is a bigger reduction in, and we're, we're looking at pain and agitation in this yep. case. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so we can, we can compare the two groups here to see if there's a bigger reduction in pain and agitation in the music therapy group. Yep. And, and we have, um, you can speak to this on the sure. tools we're using to um, assess their pain and agitation and why we have nurse, nurses on the study team yes. as well. Yes. So this study, again, it's also a nursing-led study. We do have um, a few sub-investigators who are nurses who are helping me uh, enroll the the patients. And then we actually have um, four of our ICU nurses who are doing the data collection. And the reason we have nurses doing the data collection, unlike the previous study where Ray was doing the data collection, is because they're using validated tools that we use in ICU. So obviously it has to be a nurse that's doing the assessment. So we're using the CPOT, which is our validated 
elevated pain scale for ICU. Um, and then we're also using the uh, RAS, which is our measure of agitation. Mm -hmm. So we're using those and we're um, also tracking the same measurements as before. So heart rate, respiratory rate, SpO2, pain, agitation, um, and we are looking at their medications as well. Ah, uh, so like PRNs and stuff? Uh, some of these patients are on continuous strips, various uh, vasopressors. So there's a lot going on with these patients and coordinating the session, but we are making it work. Yeah. That's really exciting. And yeah. as far as I just want to touch a little bit quickly on the intervention that I'm mm -hmm. doing in this case, because it's different okay. with the patients yeah. on ventilators. Yes. So, you know, I can't really speak with them to find out how they're feeling, what they want, what kind of music they like. So so I work with them a little bit differently. So if someone's on a ventilator and oftentimes we, we think they're anxious or have a lot of anxiety or agitation, how do we know that? They can't tell us, but maybe their heart rate's really, really high. Right. So maybe their heart rate's like 120. So we know that's an indicator. So how can I work with that? So I was talking about why I use live music, meeting the patient where they are, and then moving the music to another place. For me, that 120 is like a metronome. A metronome in music keeps the beat. Yeah. So I may start my music matching their heart rate. That's the tempo. Can I, can I show you something? Can I show you on the guitar? Yeah, sure. So the only thing is, is we can't play any copyrighted music. No, I won't. That's cool. No copyrighted music. I'll make, <laughs> That's it. Making it up as I go. Perfect. Which is what I do anyway in there. Right. <laughs> so, you know, if their heart rate is, is high, it's 120, you know, that's, that's about this. So I'm going to start my tempo. And I'm watching the heart rate monitor and it's called entrainment, meaning... The rhythm of the music is in training with their, their heart rate. And we'll just be together in the music for a little bit. And then what will happen is I will very slowly and gradually start reducing the tempo, making it a little bit slower. And then I may see the heart rate following now because our tempos are matching. So that 120 now might be coming down to 115. then we may go 30 minutes, then the tempo ends up being something like this. And when we end, here's my tempo, and their heart rate might be at a nice resting 85. So that's why we use live music in the moment. And that's how we can work with the patients on ventilators. That's now, fantastic. Yeah. Now, sometimes <laughs> I, it's so much better to record it live too. <laughs> and sometimes I might incorporate um, songs or music that they like, because I may find out from someone's daughter that they love Elvis. Mm -hmm. So I may incorporate some Elvis music into what I'm doing, or they may love Frank Sinatra, or they may love country music, or they may like the mm -hmm. Foo Fighters. Yeah. So I can incorporate <laughs> some of that. Some Ozzy. Yeah. You know, hey, everybody likes what they like like and yeah, it's important yeah, yeah. so i will incorporate some of that so that's how we can work with patients on a ventilator that's so cool and obviously you're very very talented to be able to do that and to improvise on the spot and 
just kind of match their heart rate. I mean, that that is a clinical skill to do that. Well, that's clinic. We call it clinical musicianship. So when we're studying, you know, in school, that's part of what we're learning. We're learning clinical musicianship. And that's why a music therapist who's trained is very different than just having a musician coming in and playing nice music for patients, which is great. And I'm not saying we, we shouldn't have more of that, but that's not what music therapy is. Music therapy is a, is a clinical approach. That makes sense. And then as you were doing it, then it makes makes it clear. You need to kind of see it to experience it. So do you have any great stories of patients responding to it? We don't want to share too much about the current study yet, just since we're in the midst of it. Now, Ray has so many fantastic stories about the work he does here um, in general, and I know he has some selected. Yeah. So we talked a lot about the very technical aspect of what we're doing. Give me the feel-good stuff. Right. So so also, (laughs) this is an arts-based therapy, and the aesthetics and the beauty of the music is very important. So regardless of... Of what I'm working on, there's always an emotional element that comes into play, and we work with emotions. and And, and now I'm just going to switch over to oncology, um, where sure. I also do a lot of work. And yeah. in that unit, it becomes more uh, psychosocial, and I'm working more on, um, you know, coping, emotional support with music. Yeah, I imagine. So I just I have a little story here of a, a woman I worked with um, not too long ago here in the oncology unit that I would like to share. Yeah. So uh, as a woman, she had come here to the unit because she had a a new cancer diagnosis. The thing with her was about two years ago, she had a different cancer diagnosis and had gone through treatment, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. uh, And then after that was completed, she got a completely different new cancer diagnosis and was now back in the hospital. Oh, no. So, you know, she was very feeling very defeated. Yeah, of course. And very down. And, And again, when the yeah. nurses asked me to go visit with her, it was for that reason. She was feeling really defeated, really down. So uh, when I went in, um, you know, I just went in to, to meet her and uh, I she told me her story. She told me this story about, you know, what she had gone through and now here she was with a new diagnosis. So I just let her talk a little bit and I listened to her. And finally, I just, I, I redirected the conversation a little bit to music and just talking about, you know, how we could maybe use music to help in some small way here. So we talked about things like resetting, refocusing, you know, refocusing what's going on, taking small steps because everything seemed like so daunting. And this was inpatient? Inpatient. Okay. Inpatient. So the first thing we came up with was, okay, what's the first thing we have to work on here? And uh, she said, well, it looks like I'm going to have to have surgery. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, let's let's think about that's the first step, preparing for surgery. Um, And she had had surgery on her previous diagnosis as well. So after we talked a little bit and we were kind of a little rapport going there, she told me a story that she and I had actually met before in this hospital a couple years earlier when her dad was here and her dad was very sick and he was at the end of life. And I had gone in, I was asked to go in to bring some music in for him and his family um, as he was preparing to transition. So that's another area where we can use music to help. Mm -hmm. So she told me this story, how I came in and he loved Frank Sinatra. He was a huge Frank Sinatra fan. So I was playing some Frank Sinatra songs for him. And I, and as she was telling me the story, I started to remember the situation because something really, really cool happened. I started playing the song, The Way You Look Tonight, which is a Frank Sinatra song. Mm -hmm. And as I did, he kind of opened his eyes and he kind of lit up a little bit. 
And somebody said, oh, that's his favorite song. So he kind of (laughs) sat up a little bit in bed. And then this woman, who was his daughter, who I I was talking with now, walked over to the bed and took his hands and started dancing with him. And they were doing this little dance. And it was beautiful, emotional. There was a lot of emotion in the room, as there often is. And after we were done, she pulls me aside and she says, you know, uh, I am not yet married. I always thought that would be the dance we would dance to, the father-daughter dance at my wedding. And I said, well, you, you got to have that dance now. So it was a very poignant moment for her as well as for him. So she reminded me of that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I totally remember. <laughs> I remembered that. So we had we had this we had a real connection now. Yeah. A real connection through music. Right. So then I said, all right, let's 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 get back to talking about your situation. And I, I said, tell me, are there any songs from your past that have meaning for you? Anything? And she said, yeah, actually, there's this Kenny Loggins song. It's called This Is It. And she said, I always liked that song. And I recently heard a podcast where Kenny Loggins wrote that song for his father, who was going through cancer treatment. And he wanted a positive song that he wanted him to fight. He wanted it to be a fight song. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, I said, okay. So what I did, the first thing I did was I actually pulled out my iPad and we listened to a recording of it. And as we were listening to it, I said, let's listen to the lyrics and see what's going on here. And then after we listened to it, I said, wow, these lyrics are really poignant for you right now. So I said, would you sing it with me? So I got the lyrics for her and we sang it together. And it has very strong, it's like, I want to fight. I want to fight. And after we were done, I said, you know, this is the perfect song for you. This is your fight song. And she said, yes, it is my fight song. And I said, you know, whenever you're feeling down or feeling like you can't go on, just listen to it. And I, I went, I printed up the lyrics for her. And then she said, okay, that's, that sounds like a good idea. And, and as I was leaving, she said, okay, first step, get through surgery. And I thought, wow, the thing I thought I saw a little bit of that I didn't see when I walked in the room was a teeny little bit of hope. Yeah. And it was like because of this song that we found together in our conversation. And uh, so I printed the lyrics for her and she had this little bit of hope and a little smile on her face when I left. And, and, and here it's like we have connections with songs too, like meaningful songs in our life. Yeah. And we can bring that into a situation like this. You know, when the stakes are high, it's like we have this, these songs and this music. So she was here for a couple more days and I uh, would stop in and she would, you know, she would show me her lyrics and she would smile. <laughs> so just, uh, that's just a little story of how we can really use the emotional elements that music and songs can bring. And and every situation is unique yeah. and unto itself. It's like meeting the patient where they are and what do they need in this moment. And what she needed was she needed a fight song. So we gave her a fight song. Yeah. So that's beautiful. I think the all of us were sitting here tearing up as you were telling that story. <laughs> <laughs> this true. podcast doesn't have a lot of uh happy, feel good moments on it. Usually people are like telling about really traumatic stories from EMS or something. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is not a comedy podcast, it's not a feel good podcast. So it was really nice to have feel good stories yeah. for once. So thank you. <laughs> is there anything else you guys want to talk about what you do here at all before we wrap up? The only other thing I was going to mention about the study that we're doing right now, which is really interesting, is when we built the study, we had a thought 
that the, the patients, families who, you know, we, we come back in and say, okay, they were put in the control group or they were put in the intervention group. I would say the overwhelming majority of the families who are consenting for their loved one to be in the study want the patient to still receive music therapy, even if they're put in the control group. And we mm -hmm. built that into our study protocol because we felt that it's become a standard of our care here. And we did not want to deprive patients. We wanted to do the study as an RCT to make it a stronger study, but we did not want to deprive anyone of receiving music if they wanted to. So uh, most of the time, even if our patients, you know, they get put in that control group, their family still wants them to receive music therapy. And I think it, they really, you know, in general, patients, family members, when they get to be there, they really look forward to it. Um, it's really not just the patient that's experiencing it. It's sort of Ray has like almost an entourage at times of people <laughs> in the room. And um, well, so it really goes beyond just the patient. It's really like a whole family experience or like you said, maybe the nurse is benefiting, maybe the physician's benefiting. So it really kind of speaks to what, what you're trying to do in healthcare, right? Which is meeting patients' unique needs, really speaking to an individual and treating an individual and not a disease. And right. Well, any anytime there's caregivers in the room and I'm working with a patient, it becomes just as much for them Mm -hmm. as it does for the patient. Um, sometimes even more so because mm -hmm. they, they don't have a whole lot of, uh, or many resources for themselves while they're here. They're trying to be, you know, the rock and be here for this person, but they're going through a lot of stuff too. And it is oh, amazing. Yeah. It is amazing to me how much, you know, it, you know, just adding a musical element just brings out emotion. And I will see caregivers just sort of have a cathartic release and I'll say to them this is good you you're holding all that in you need to sometimes just get this out yeah. as well so it's always about everyone in the room so uh, like but like Amanda was saying and, and just to clarify so we'll, we we do the uh, the study and we get all the readings and then after the fact we'll, yes. we'll still they'll still be able to have music there I was gonna say it's just at a separate time yeah, it's just at a separate time after not... the fact we don't, right we don't want to deny people Yes. A service here, you know, going back to our research study, you mm -hmm. know, we don't want to deny something for someone because they're not in the intervention group, right? if that makes sense. Yeah. And you mentioned for the caregivers as well, but also if, in primary care, I'm always looking for like patients to say like some little nugget of something that I can kind of pull on a thread to get to know them a little bit better and to help build that connection for individualized care. And so, you know, oh, you're going on vacation this weekend. Where are you going? What do you like to do? How can I know you better as a person? Because in primary care, we have very extended relationships. But of course, in the ICU, they may be here for a long time as well. And so if a nurse is maybe watching you do music therapy, they may know that patient much better because they found out what they like as far as their music or what kind of personality that patient gets. And they're seeing them in a different light and that can be really helpful for the the nursing care to go oh I like Kenny Loggins music too I saw him in concert once and all those little small talk conversations that you can do while you're changing a pick line dressing or you're doing all these things that are just not talking about medical care it's so important for nursing and providers and all these other things that there's all these other secondhand benefits that you can get from it. Right. Absolutely. I think the nursing staff does a really good job of addressing the patient's unique needs and using music therapy is really, you know, just complemented our practice. And I really think it um, is helping, you know, and that's another thing we can study too is long-term recovery. Um, and maybe in the future, we might be looking into that as well. But I think Ray, really, there are certain patients uh, that he sees throughout their, their um, hospitalization. And that really speaks to the connection that he's able to build with the patient and the family and 
it's, it's just really powerful. So That's so awesome. It's wonderful that you guys are doing this here and that you seem to be really well supported by the hospital to do it. I mean, you got you invited me here to talk about it. So that's just that's a testament to it in itself. And Ray, I wish you would hang out in my waiting room and play music for patients. It would probably make all of us a lot better, make our lives a lot easier. So thank you guys so, so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me about music therapy and everything you do here at Innova Loudon. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that special episode. And thank you so, so much to everyone at Innova Loudon for inviting me out there, specifically Renee. Thank you for coordinating everything and allowing me to come out there and work with Amanda and Ray. You guys were really fantastic. It was a great opportunity for the podcast, and I'm so grateful. Anyone that wants to reach out to me, you can do so through all of our social media accounts. It is Antidote Stories and Medicine Podcast on Facebook, and Antidotes Podcast on Instagram. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP. And of course, you can always send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. And thank you, as always, to Peter Hopkins, our wonderful musician who made our custom music. So everybody, enjoy your accomplishments. Congratulations to the new grads. Everyone that's been in the field a while, be nice to the new grads. (laughs) Remember when you were new too, please. And I will see you next time.